0: Mark Cuban. Going against the norm and, and looking for people who had great ideas is, is really what I look for as opposed to individuals mentoring me. David Stern.
1: Thank you. Those are very kind and generous words. I greatly
2: appreciate them, and thanks for having me on. Jeannie
0: Bus. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. Chris Everett.
2: It was very interesting. You asked great questions, so thank you very much, Brian.
0: Damian Luller.
2: That was for Seattle.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Maria Taylor. Oh,
2: thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. In your preparation shows, you. Tim Howard. Well, I appreciate you saying. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Just to name a
3: few.
1: Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio. Hope you're staying safe and doing well. I hope you've had a chance to listen to some of the incredible guests that we've had on Sports Business Radio lately. John Smoltz, baseball Hall of Famer and Fox analyst. Candace Parker, who plays for the WNBA's L.A. Sparks and is a podcaster and broadcaster for TNT. Al Guido, the president of the San Francisco 49ers, just to name a few. If you don't subscribe to our podcast, please do so at iTunes or on Spotify. We always love when you rate and review our podcast. Thank you so much for that. Coming up on our show today, Marshall Glickman good friend of mine, CEO of G2 Strategic. He is a European sports expert. He's the former president of the NBA's Portland Trailblazers. I wanted to take a look during this show at sport in other places than the United States. we focused solely on the United States since March 11th when COVID hit, but we're going to take you to Europe during this show with Marshall Glickman and then Ian Fitzpatrick, who is the general manager of sport at the University of Western Australia in Perth. He's going to join us as well to examine COVID-19's impact on Australia. So we're going to take you to Europe. We're going to take you to Australia on the show today. I think you will find both conversations fascinating. I'm joined virtually by our executive producer, Brian Griggs. Griggs, how are you?
3: Doing good. And I think it's uh, cool how you brought guests on from, you know, talking about the other parts of the world because every country is dealing with this in a different way. So smart to bring them on and get get a viewpoint from across the pond.
1: Well, and sports are different in Europe and sports are different in Australia than how we play them in the United States, how the business of sport is run. So I think you'll get a really fascinating look at how those parts of the world are being impacted. But also, you know, what, what are the most popular sports? How are they doing their business? Uh, we'll have all of that for you on today's show. All right, some headlines. The NFL schedule is out. It came out on Thursday. Uh, Tom Brady versus Drew Brees. Bucks versus Saints in week one. The NFL also announces no international games in 2020. Griggs, was there a game on the schedule that stood out to you that you're looking forward to? It's funny, you just mentioned it.
3: Brady versus Breeze. I mean, that's going to be uh phenomenal right there. And, you know, I looked at, I'm always, my dad's a big Packers fan, so Packers-Vikings first uh, week is always a good uh, rivalry game. So, you know, it's NFL. Every game's going to be fun and interesting. It'll be fun to see the new draft picks in play if some of them are playing. So uh, I'm excited.
1: Well, I think we have Vikings Saints on Christmas Day. So you've got a little treat under the tree of NFL football as well on Christmas Day. So, uh, but, you know, this all comes with the caveat of we don't know what the future holds. So, you know, it's great. The NFL is moving along business as usual. They've announced their schedule. People are excited, but September seems so far off. I mean, here we are in May. Lots of things could happen between now and then. Hopefully we're in a better place in September and things can proceed. But, uh, I would warn all fans proceed with caution. And, you know, your enthusiasm should be a little bit cautious as well, just because we don't know what the future holds. All right. UFC is returning for the first time since March 14th. They're going to do that this weekend. UFC 249 is going to be held in Jacksonville, Florida. Griggs, again, people are starving for live sports. I think this is going to do real well. Dana White has put together a good card and, you know, they are testing the fighters and I think uh, this will be well-received on TV.
3: I think so, too. And uh, Florida, you know, always gets up for these things. So, it's you know, they're going to have a good vibe around. And, uh, you know, it's UFC was one of the last things to kind of slow down. And now they're ramping back up again, one of the first ones to ramp back up. So I think Dana White is on the forefront, and he's pushing this, and hopefully it does well for him.
1: Last headline before we get into our interviews. The NBA is going to be reopening a couple of practice facilities today, Friday. The Cavaliers, the Portland Trailblazers, the Denver Nuggets, and maybe another team or two will open their facilities today. Uh, ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski reiterates the NBA believes it needs 15,000 coronavirus tests to get through the resumption of the season to the end. And again, the NBA's talked about playing in a bubble environment in either Las Vegas at the MGM Or at Disney World in Orlando. So Griggs, a few facilities are opening, but then there's other owners that, you know, these players aren't going to be tested when they walk into the facility. So there's other owners that are concerned that, okay, we've got these players coming back into these facilities. They've got to do the social distancing. You know, you can't have large gatherings or crowds in there. But what if someone has COVID and they walk into your facility and they don't show symptoms? That is a concern to, to several owners in the NBA.
3: Yeah, and I think that's a real concern, too. I think uh it's something you got to think about, and it's just these are all baby steps, too. It's interesting to see how only certain teams are doing it this way, other teams are doing it this way. So it's it's going to be very uh something to watch, for sure, as teams start to come back together.
1: The other thing on this is head coaches cannot be present for any workouts, only assistant coaches. So, uh you know, I, I don't know if the NBA feels like if you have a head coach working with the players right now, that's an advantage. But uh, head coach is not allowed to work out with the players, only assistant coaches. So what do you think of that, Griggs?
3: Yeah, that's kind of interesting, too. I mean, I, I get it. I guess I get it. <laughs> I don't really get it, but I see why they're trying to say that. So uh, I don't know. I don't think it makes too much difference, but whatever they say.
1: All right. Before we get to our interviews, anything uh, going on uh, with the Griggs family that we should know about? Mother's Day this weekend. So we are... That's right. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. We are doing kind of a social distancing
3: Mother's Day. We're doing drive-bys to both the families and, uh, you know, waving from the window and talking in the driveway. So we'll see how that
1: goes. Yeah, definitely. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. And yeah, look, all the holidays, birthdays, graduations, everything is so odd during COVID-19. But, uh, you know, I hope everyone gets the chance to FaceTime with their mom. I'll be FaceTiming with my mom. And, uh, you know, happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there. All right. Coming up next, Marshall Glickman, the CEO of G2 Strategic, a European sports expert. We're going to go to Europe virtually, and we're going to examine the landscape in Europe during COVID-19. What does it look like right now? How might they come out of this? And then we're going to go to Australia Ian Fitzpatrick, General Manager of Sport at the University of Western Australia in Perth. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Hey everyone. I'm thrilled to tell you about a new Sports Business Radio partner who's going to help you and whose products have been life changing for me and my family. CBDMD is now the official CBD partner of Sports Business Radio. Many people use CBD products as a regular part of their health and wellness routines. But only the best use superior products from CBDMD. CBDMD has a wide variety of CBD oil products, ranging from classic CBD oil tinctures to topicals, gummies. Heck, they even have CBD for your pets. From NFL veterans like Nate Burleson and future Hall of Famer Steve Smith Sr. to two-time Masters champion Bubba Watson, CBDMD is tested and trusted by people who know pain. And the best part? All CBDMD products are THC-free, that was important for me, third-party tested, and backed by a 60-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. Look, these are anxious times for many of us right now. We're not sleeping nearly as well. I tried CBDMD's award-winning CBD PM drops, and I now sleep through the night. My daughter loves CBDMD's Revive Moisturizing Lotion and the CBDMD Freeze Pain Roller for her aches and pains from playing sports. And our dog loves the CBDMD soft chews. And because the products are all THC-free, MD is safe for our family. Dozens of companies have sent me CBD product to try over the years, but none come close to the superior quality of CBDMD. Sleep better, relieve your aches and pains, Give your pets treats that they will love. And to make it even easier to see what CBD can do for you, CBDMD is offering all of our listeners 25% off your order when you use the promo code SBR at checkout. Once again, go to CBDMD.com and use promo code SBR at checkout to save 25% on your purchase of superior CBD oil products, from cbdmd again cbdmd.com use the promo code sbr at checkout and save 25 percent. thank me later my guest is marshall glickman he is the ceo of g2 strategic almost four decades of experience working in the sports and entertainment sector his clients include the atp EuroLeague basketball, La Liga, and many others. I would say he is the foremost European sports expert that I know. And the way that Marshall and I know each other, you've probably heard him on Sports Business Radio before, but Marshall gave me my first job in sports. He was the president of the Portland Trailblazers. I was a little snot-nosed intern. And uh, <laughs> Marshall was kind enough to let me sit in his office and uh, pick his brain and share ideas. And you know, I owe Marshall a lot. So Marshall, thanks for joining me on Sports Business Radio. How are you?
0: Always good to talk to you, Brian. How you doing?
1: I'm doing great. Good. I wanted to bring you on. You know, we've talked a lot in the last two months about sport and the impact of COVID-19 in the United States. But because you are a European sports expert, you have clients over there, you're dealing with them in real time. And you've got to find solutions. And, and you know, I, I just wanted to bring you on for kind of an overview of sports in Europe right now. So let's start with this question for our audience who hasn't been to a sporting event in Europe before. I know it's different than the United States. Give us a little bit of an overview of the differences with sport in Europe versus the United States.
0: Oh my lord, Brian!
1: That's I know. a really—it's really- very broad, but like you know, <laughs> it's a different experience.
0: Yeah, it is a different experience. Well, you know, from a it depends how you're sort of the context of the question. If you're looking at that from a business perspective, uh, gate receipts are not nearly as substantial in Europe as they are in the States, as far as a uh, a contribution to the overall revenue pie. Um, And the reason for that, there are many reasons for it. Um, The ticket prices are far less than they are here. Um, You know, they sell season tickets, but at very deep discounts. And you have to remember that certain clubs like Barca, Real Madrid, are actually member-owned clubs. And (laughs) the members elect the president. (laughs) So the last thing is going to happen is the president is going to charge, you know, us like ticket prices to see their games since the members have the vote. Um, and so because of that, it's television is a more significant driver of the bottom line, even though it's very significant here, it's more significant there. Therefore, um, they're doing everything they can to get these games played so they can be televised. Now we're doing the same here. So from that perspective, it's not that different. Um, The occupancy, the other big difference though, is because season tickets are generally really cheap in Europe. I mean, you can buy a season ticket to see FC Barcelona football for like $900. Wow. To see the whole year uh, or even less, depending on where you're sitting. But occupancy, then, is very low, uh, except for the big games. So that's a big issue. There's 30,000 empty seats, sometimes 40 even, in Camp No. Uh, when they're playing league games that aren't that important. Obviously, when they're playing big games or if it's a derby match, which is like a rivalry game, then it goes up. But um, So that's another really big difference is um, sort of people in the stands and, and all that. Um, you know, I could go on and on and on.
1: What about sponsorships?
0: Sponsorship is important, uh, in Europe, uh, but um, the business is not as sophisticated as it is here. You know, we're here, um, you know, this goes all the way back to my days working for John Spolster at the Trailblazers. I mean, we always looked at sponsorship as the need to deliver a platform that would generate ROI for the sponsor. So it was looked at as an investment and the sponsor expected a return. The return, not just in the form of how many people see my logo on the sideline or on court side or, uh, uh, you know, or wherever that's going to be or how many people see my, advertisement but actually what did the club do to get people to take action that's why Spolstra taught me so many years ago that it's all about consumer promotions and driving those promotions right do you remember friends bread trading cards I do okay that's a great you know very old-school example but it was a great example because in fact the sales of friends bread went up substantially during that period of time And we put the trading cards inside the bread packages at a time when bread sales were normally lower. So we drove up bread sales. So at the end of the day, it didn't matter how many, what our ratings really were on television. I'm not saying that's not a factor, but it wasn't nearly as important. In Europe, they're still selling the idea of your logo is going to be seen on TV or through social media or through other means. Uh, you know, this many times and they come up with a formula and that's how they evaluate, uh, sponsorships. Uh, things are beginning to change. Of course, everybody here and now it's beginning to come to Europe. It's really about experience. It's about reaching very particular demographics. It's about micro targeting. It's about data. It's about creating, you know, B2B platforms and networking platforms and you know, and activation. Um, but in Europe, uh, they're well behind the states in that in that way. And so sponsorship is important, uh, money, but it's not like it is here.
1: I'm going to throw out a quick plug. John Spolster, for those young people out there who don't know who he is, he is the father of Eric, the head coach of the Miami Heat, but Ice to the Eskimos, one of the great sports marketing <laughs> books you will ever read. If you haven't read it, order it and read it during COVID-19 and thank us later right? Right.
0: Well, I mean, the title itself, right? Yep. (laughs) It's
2: It's great.
1: Yeah. All right. You have a number of clients in Europe. What in the short term are you working with them on? Because Marshall, this is all new territory for most of us. We've never been through a pandemic before. People are looking for solutions and answers. You're a guy who has solutions and answers, or at least can lead those conversations to find the right solutions and answers. What are you working with your clients on in the short term?
0: Well, I'm reminding them that the only certainty is uncertainty. And so the situation is fluid. It changes by the day. And so there is no expertise and none of us have, you know, any background on dealing with a pandemic. Uh, This is particularly difficult, obviously, for a business it is based on, you know, live events and people being there. So while gate receipts in Europe aren't as significant, they're still important. And gate receipts, also people being in the stands, create the, the backdrop, you know, for television. And of course, Europe, and you asked me what the differences are, of course, the big difference in terms of the atmosphere inside the stadiums is the supporters culture. Now, we see glimpses of, glimpses of that here at the Timbers games right here in Portland, at the Sounders games. Several MLS clubs have developed really great supporters' cultures. But over there, it's at a whole nother level of, uh, you know, intensity. Now, so with all that said, the focus now is um, I am working in, with La Liga. Uh, I chair a committee called the Customer Experience Committee. There are 18 clubs on that committee. We're video conferencing on a regular basis. And right now my big assignment is I am writing guidelines. Those guidelines are what do we do now? Uh, What do we do when the gates open but to limited capacity? And what do we do when the gates open to full capacity? And nobody knows the timing of those phases other than what do we do now? And of course, what do we do now is how are we going to plan for and prepare for the next two phases? And it's very, very complicated. I am looking as we speak at a World Health Organization document, which is called Considerations for Sports Federations and Sport Event Organizers when Planning Mass Gatherings in the Context of COVID-19. You know, we're going to have to talk, you know, the transition, especially in Europe, which is well behind the states, to move towards contactless payment, to move towards 100 percent paperless ticketing, uh, to move to uh, some form of certification, perhaps, that says you've been tested uh, and that you've tested negative, uh, to move towards how we do sanitation in our buildings, uh, how employees are uniformed. Uh, and, of course, the real challenge is going to be when we're at partial capacity and we still have to keep social distance, um, you know, trying to figure out basically a checkerboard seating manifest. Not not an easy thing to do. It's doable, but not easy to do. And what do you say to a season ticket holder? So if you only have, you know, if you have 12,000 season tickets and 10,000 seats, who doesn't get to go? And so we're addressing all of those complexities. We're also addressing refunding because the plan at La Liga is to play the balance of the season behind closed doors and probably the entire first half of next season behind closed doors. Now, that's a step better than France. The French League is shut down. It's not they didn't want to shut down. The government forced it. So they really threw in the towel in France. Germany is moving forward next week. Bundesliga, uh, Serie A still has plans and La Liga has plans to move forward behind closed doors, probably starting in June. And when that happens, it means people that have pre-purchased tickets, mostly in the form of season tickets, are not going to get what they paid for. Clubs have severe cash flow problems. So one club I was on the phone with last week when I said, you have to offer refunds as an option you can give people five or six other options they could take a credit they could take vouchers they could donate uh the equivalent amount of the refund to uh, a health organization or they could physically buy the tickets but donate their tickets to healthcare workers who uh are going to deserve a thank you, uh, you know, down the line. There's many, many, many options in terms of what can happen. But one club told me I can't refund, and I said, why not? He said, because I don't have any money in the back. None. Zero. So this is an extreme situation. You know, when people think of European football, and La Liga specifically, what do they think of? They think of Barca. They think of, you know, FC Barcelona, Real Madrid, Atletico, Madrid, maybe Athletic Club, maybe Valencia, maybe Sevilla, maybe Betis. But outside of that, uh, hey, there's 42 clubs at two divisions uh, in, in Spain, and cash flow is a real challenge. So we're trying to be very creative on how we can do the right thing by our customers uh, on the one hand, um, but also deal with the realities of cash flow. And then I think finally, Brian, I know it's a long-winded answer. The the two biggest challenges I think going forward, and this is in the States as well, are going to be fear and money, right? Is even when the government says it's okay, whether that's partial capacity initially and then ultimately full capacity, a large segment of the population, and there's already research showing this, is still not going to be comfortable going into a mass gathering. And so... Uh, how we manage that situation is going to be essential to give people confidence that it's safe uh, to go into a place like a concert or a Blazer game or an NFL game, MLS game. Um, you know, that's point one. And then the money. So you've got, you know, real severe problems, even wealthy people. You know, if you go to an NBA game, most people are wealthy, right? What's the average ticket price, Brian? Oh, my <laughs> the God. NBA?
1: Yeah, it's a few hundred bucks.
0: Yeah, okay. So that's not, you know, the NBA, the reality is the NBA pretty much shut out lower income and even middle income people a long time ago. Now there are seats in the upper levels that might be considered affordable, but for the most part, the seats are super expensive. But even people who have money, who have wealth, have been hit hard. I mean, I have a friend of mine who is a many, many millionaire, and he's lost 25% of his portfolio in a month. Wow! So for those kind of people, if you think of the psychology of that, it's going to cause them to be a little more conservative about how they um, uh, allocate uh, discretionary money. And so um, we've got to deal with these issues. So we're talking about payment plans and deferrals and all kinds of uh, creative ways to make it more convenient and easier. But all of that being said, we're going to lose some fans. And I think the reality due to fear and money. And I think the, at at the end and here, I'm kind of guessing because nobody really knows, but I think the biggest impact is going to be people over sort of 50, you know, my age (laughs) over 60, uh, because, um, uh, you know, I think they're more vulnerable and going to be a little more conservative as they're approaching retirement uh, with their money. So uh, now I, I want to say this the right way. Um, this, from my point of view, is a big opportunity, especially in Europe. In Europe, the fan, the demographics are aging. Uh, EuroLeague basketball and La Liga and most of the European leagues are too old. If you will, from a pure business point of view, you like to refresh. You always want to refresh your fan base. So I look at this as a, a way to take advantage of the pent-up demand that is inevitable. And I think younger people, which is a very attractive demographic to sponsors, right? I think younger people are going to be more uh, willing to uh, to go out and, uh, and gather, uh, hopefully taking all the right precautions. Sorry for the very long answer.
1: No, it's all really good stuff. I had Al Guido, the president of the San Francisco 49ers on a few weeks ago, and he said to me, we're gonna have to work harder than we've ever worked before to earn that disposable dollar. So,
0: yep.
1: you know, I guess my question to you would be, what are some of the ways that you can either add value or, you know, offer a less expensive ticket, make fee- people feel like they're safe when they come to the venues, yeah, everyone's looking for these answers, but if you're telling me, like others have told me, that fear and money are going to be the two deciding factors for this, how do you get people to overcome those hurdles?
0: Oh, it's very complicated. And by the way, Al, uh, I've gotten to know Al myself. Great. He's one, he's one of the best. Yeah, yeah, he's really good. Um, well, on the fear side, I think a lot can be done. Uh, I was just looking today, there's an Israeli company that has created a portable module uh, where people can get tested. And so I can see, and it's really, really cool, and I can see testing stations outside of venues. I think certification that you have been tested, tested negative, and within a certain period of time, is uh, may become modus operandi for all of us. So, that, so that, 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 that that certification somehow is built into the barcode or the QR code or the NFC code. So at access control at the turnstile, uh, you only gain admittance if you have that certification in addition to your ticket, which is all in a blended uh, digital format. So I think that's one thing that can be done too. Wait,
1: let me stop you there. So I've seen video of athletes and just everyday people being tested. And, you know, the Korean Baseball League started up again this week. And I've seen video of some of the players. They get tested every day. It is a painful test. So are people going to be willing to step into this Mm. little booth and get the test done? And then, hey, Mm. all right, I'm clear I can go into the stadium.
0: Right. No, no, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just suggesting that there's... I think arenas and stadiums could be good locations for testing stations. Here's what the Israeli example that I just gave you, and this is in Israel, but it'll get shipped out. Um, people are walking up or driving up to a testing station. They've developed a certain kind of a, let's say window that is being placed in a building and somebody's on the inside, but they put their hands through these kind of gloves that go to the outside. And they actually test you that way. So you're outside the building, they're inside the building. The testing is done with two swabs, uh, one up the nose and one down the throat. It's not painful. I mean, at least from what I saw, I, I could see the guy getting tested. and He had to kind of cough a little bit, just like when they stick a, you know, when the doctor puts a, uh, what do you call it when they, when he's checking your throat, you know, and you kind of choke right? It's the same similar thing, and then that goes into a thing and they get their test results in twenty four hours. so that's what's happening right now in Israel now, whether or not that can ever be done on a mass basis, I have no idea. All I'm saying is that I'm not sure it depends whether this is a government regulation or something we want to do voluntarily, but from my perspective, to overcome fear, I would like to know that the people who are allowed to enter the stadium or the arena have tested negative recently. I'm not suggesting every day or anything like that. And I don't know if that's ever gonna be realistic. I'm just telling you that's something we're all thinking about. Now, uh, you will then come to access control, which is turnstiles, that whole process, the, the days of handing somebody a physical ticket, or in Europe, most season tickets are actually cards, you know, that you have in your wallet. Those days are over, right? So that's going to accelerate the transition to all digital formats. It's going to accelerate. Uh, you're going to see more, you know, gra- you know, on the food and beverage side, you're going to see more self-service. You know, there's really cool systems now where you can even get a beer. And you have to have the uh, ID, right, before it will. To, for, for the system to function. Um, so I think uh, you're going to see more self-service. You're going to see more grab-and-go. You're going to see more in-seat delivery. doesn't mean all concessions will stop, but I think it's going to be significant. You're going to see spacing, and so you're going to see a lot of new signage and a lot of new markers and a lot of new things, including outside the buildings where people are queuing to uh, create spacing. Uh, then you're going to see sanitation crews, uh, Tim Wywicky's company, and, you know, Tim is a partner of Al Guido's on several ventures. Yes. His company, Oakview Group, is starting a whole new division around sanitation. I heard that. You know, and AEG, uh, who's Tim's competitor, where he used to be in charge, but they just announced a major initiative regarding sanitation. So sanitation is going to be a big, big thing. Uh, I think you're going to see staggered start t- staggered entry times. So that your ticket is going to be coded in such a way that you have to be in the queue for you know to get through access control at a certain time, at a certain window of time, uh, so that they can space out, space that out. You don't want uh, twenty thousand people showing up at the same time. Now, in the states, that's not as big of an issue because uh, people tend to go into arenas and stadiums earlier because there's so much good. Fun things to do and lots of good food and drink and other cool things to do. Uh, in Europe, most people go to the bars because you can't drink in the stadiums in most European countries. Now, there are exceptions to what I just said. In Germany, you can. And in the U.K. on a limited basis, you can. But in Spain, no. In France, no. In Italy, no. So people go to the bars, drink beer before the game, and they show up five minutes before kickoff. Hmm. And so you got everybody coming through at the same time that habit it's going to be very hard to change habits that have been established over a long time it's kind of in the dna it's the culture Uh, but we're going to have to make changes there too because people can't all come at the same time so it's this is really complex and um this is why, uh, you know, there's going to be a lot of experts that are a lot more expert than I am. What I'm trying to do is coalesce all this information, think it through, help clubs and coach clubs in terms of thinking about it. And then a big, big part of this, Brian, and you know this better than anybody, is communication. How are we communicating? How often are we communicating? Where are we communicating? What is the messaging? Is the messaging aligned between the leagues, the clubs, And the various stakeholders. This is really complicated in Europe, more so than here. Here, you have a commissioner like Adam Silver, who's, by the way, just been awesome, right? I agree. Handled this so well. But so you've got Adam, and you know he talks to the clubs, he forms committees. They, you know, they've got an army of people working on things. But ultimately, the messaging is consistent, and the policies are going to be the same for all clubs in Europe. Wow. That's a daunting, the idea of having policies be the same for all clubs is daunting. The leagues are important, but they don't have the same, they don't have a commissioner who can put out, you know, they don't have any command and control the clubs are very independent is what i'm telling you. So
1: well, it's- and like Euroleague as we've discussed on this show before, you've got teams playing in different countries with different rules. So it's not yeah. hey, one country and it's like the United States and everyone just falls into place. Right. And so, you know, and
0: you know, even Spain is more independent. You know, Barca and Madrid don't spend a lot of time hanging out with the league office, okay? I'll just tell you straight up. But so You're right. Now, with EuroLeague, you're right, much more complicated. I think it's, what are we, in 13 countries? And you're not only talking about EU countries, because Israel is in EuroLeague, uh, Russia is in EuroLeague, Lithuania is in EuroLeague, uh, 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 you know, Greece, Turkey. Well, those are EU countries. But so you have, it's really complex, really, really
1: complex. Analytics. A lot of the executives I've spoken with here in the United States in the last couple months, they're doing deep analytics. What do their customers want? What are they hearing from sponsors? In Europe, are you having those conversations to capture that data so you know what fans and sponsors and the key stakeholders are looking for when the return to sports does come?
0: Very much so. Analytics and data and big data and You know, all that prediction analysis is all a big topic. The big challenge in Europe and a big difference, you asked me earlier about the differences, is GDPR. So GDPR is protecting people's privacy. And the EU laws around this are far more stringent than our laws. Here, if you don't want to receive email, for example, or text messaging from somebody or from some enterprise, you can opt out, you can say unsubscribe me. In Europe, it's the other way around, you have to opt in. This means, if you buy a season ticket from Real Madrid, in order for Real Madrid to send you further emails, and I'm just talking about you know pretty basic things that are normal here, uh, you have to opt in. You have to give them permission to send you those emails. And it's not opt-out. It's not like you're going to automatically receive them unless you say, I don't want them. It's the other way around. So actually capturing the data is one thing, but being able to utilize the data after you capture it, very challenging. This is a big topic, and it's something that I'm working with my clients on all the time, which is how do we incentivize people to opt-in? And that's not easy because there's a lot more, I would say, resistance uh, to invasion of privacy in Europe than there is here.
1: Hmm. Interesting. Uh, We've talked about the consumer, the sponsor. What about the athletes? If there's less revenues coming in, you would think, well, maybe there's not as much money to pay the athletes. The other thing that we've been discussing, Marshall, recently on Sports Business Radio is there's been some talk – of playing games more regionally and cutting down on cross-country travel in college football or even baseball playing in certain regions of the country so you're staying kind of in your region versus traveling long distances is that being discussed in Europe
0: no because in the domestic leagues you're staying inside your country and the countries that are about the size of some of our big states like Montana you know, I mean, right, or Texas, that's a, that's a country in Europe. So from a geographic point of view, there's not. And then in the Champions League, you know, the top clubs that qualify to play in the Europa League or the Champions League, you know, that's not – I don't see that changing. There's not that many games. Um, so um, what was the first question? The though? revenue for the athletes. If there's a yeah, smaller yeah, pie, do, I mean – No, it's going to come down. Yeah. I mean, look, here's – this is the other – I mean, I keep coming back to your first question, one of the big differences, right? There's no salary cap, okay? <laughs> so there's no, there's no collective bargaining agreement um, that that links revenue to player payroll. The beauty of the system here is if revenues fall as a result of all this, obviously player salaries are going to fall. I mean, the salary cap number is going to go down. In the NBA, now, everybody's so-called cap is quite different and quite complex, but I have no doubt payrolls are going down. Now, whether they'll come back in the future, I'm actually bullish. I think for especially the NBA, uh, I'm you know very high on how the NBA is handling this, what their global potential is, and I don't think any of that changes. In fact, I could make the case that the NBA in the long run is going to come out of this better. Uh, I think the same with Major League Soccer. I'm very high on that league in terms of how they operate, uh, the kind of demographic mix, uh, the diversity. A lot of good things are happening there. Uh, NFL, will sort of, we'll see. I think the NFL could, could suffer from all this because the NFL and college football, which I love, I'm a big Ducks guy, but you know, the whole thing is around tailgating and social, right? I mean, for me, going to Ducks game is a social experience. If I just, if all I cared about was the football game, it's better to watch it at home, you know? So I, but I want to be there. I want to be in that atmosphere. I want to be there when Puddles comes out on a motorcycle, right? That to me. That's the, what charges me up. And so it's that, those sports are challenged. Baseball, you know, I, I don't know. Baseball, to me, it's the experience of going to the ballpark is more important, you know, to watch. I mean, to watch a baseball game on TV, you got to be a pretty diehard fan. Now, I happen to be a diehard Boston Red Sox fan, but outside of that, I don't care. Um, but if you take me to a major league ballpark and I can have that, you know, that whole experience that we love, then I'm totally into that. So, yeah, I think it depends on the sport. Uh In Europe, this is going to be, you know, this is going to be a really big, big challenge. So how are we going to pull down payrolls? I think it's inevitable. They're already coming down. I mean, the numbers that they're paying just in transfer fees, oh, my Lord, it's a crazy system, right? You know, you bring up a kid through an academy, and this would be like in baseball, bringing up somebody through your minor league system, and then the the minute this kid becomes, like, really good, you sell them off. And the reason you sell them off is because that's the only way you can balance your budget. This is what most clubs do in Europe. And when they sell them off, they're pretty much selling them off to the U.K., Let's be honest. Or to, you know, maybe 10 super big clubs. But, you know, for all the rest of the clubs, not a very good system. I don't know if you. So, I, so, so I'm sorry, Brian. I think I'm being very transparent here. I think this is a great opportunity for European football. I think it's a great opportunity for your league basketball, too. I mean, you know, as sad as this whole thing is, I think it's an opportunity to change their model and change how they're doing business, because how they're doing business now is 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 frankly insane from my point of view. And they're so deep in debt. You know, Barcelona does a billion a year in revenue and they're having cash flow problems. Okay, I mean, explain that to me.
1: It's a bad business model.
0: Well, it's ridiculous. They spend so much money to try to win games. It's win at all costs. And we all want to win games. But, uh, you know, you got to do it in a rational way. Yeah.
1: And it's also a business.
0: It is a business. But over there, you can't say that out loud. You know, if if, if we were if you were calling me, if we were doing this interview in Europe, I saying what i'm saying
1: so you know oh we have european listeners so you're gonna you're gonna be yeah thanks great okay
0: good now now i'm gonna lose all my business
1: no (laughs) you're not this is good expertise did you see yesterday that disney came out with their earnings and announced that they've lost a billion dollars at their theme parks alone this quarter yep so, there you, go. you know, again, my mind goes to, OK, the businesses that are built on mass gatherings, they got their work cut out for them.
0: big time now that listen, it's all going to come back. I think, you know, I don't agree with our president on much, but I would agree with him on that. It's going to come back at some point. It's going to come back no matter what. Right. At some point, we're just going to take our lumps and move forward. This society is not going to function with people living behind closed doors like we are right now. I mean, that's my personal opinion.
1: But there will be a new normal like after 9-11. There's a reset on some things. Right,
0: but but that's the point. We we adjusted. We adapted to 9-11, and we're going to adapt to this. So, yes, there's going to be more precautions taken. In the long run, how long are people going to wear their masks? So I'm trying to convince soccer clubs that masks need to become like scarves. I mean, why is it the Portland Timber fans wear a scarf to the game when it's 90 degrees out? Because it's part of the DNA of a football, of soccer, right? It's part of the what makes it cool. It's a, it's a symbol of your of your fandom, and it's great and it's tradition in far in in football. Um, and I think that those, uh, masks can, should be the same, right? So. I think we're going to have to deal with, you know, creating this new normal. And I think we can manage it. Technology is a great thing. I think we're going to manage it just fine. And I think ultimately it's going to we're going to come out better for this. I mean, again, in Europe, they need to refresh their fan base anyway. So I want to see more diversity in Europe. You know that only 20 percent of the fans are female. It's ridiculous. Wow. Uh, When I go to a Portland Timbers game, it looks to me more like 50-50. And I think that's pretty close to what their numbers really are, Um, and uh, and I also see you know diversity, just all kinds of diversity, ethnic diversity, and male female and everything. And I think Europe needs now the European countries aren't as diverse as far as their populations, so they can't, but they are as diverse. You know, male female is the same. So the fact that there aren't enough women in the in the place. And enough people that are, I would say, sort of on the older edge of Gen Z and the younger edge of millennial, we need more of those people. So this is an opportunity.
1: So not to give away all your strategies here, but if you're looking for more diversity, you're looking for more women, and you're looking for a younger demographic, what are a couple of the ways that you would tell your clients in Europe to try and make those things happen?
0: Well, it takes a lot of, uh, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a multi-year effort, believe me. Uh, you have to change the nature of the experience. And so this, the, the pandemic's going to sort of force that to some extent. And this goes back to the reference you made to Al Guido, right? He understands this, right? So you have to make the experience something that people have. It's, it's not a, really a question of money at the end because younger people will spend a greater proportion of their income on going out and less money on things. This is the trend line, right? They can live in a small apartment, you know, until they have a family and then they need a bigger one, but people are less material possession oriented in those generations and more experiential oriented. So we need to make the experience really great and really cool. So in Europe, It's always been only really about football. You can walk into a stadium. Well, I'm sorry, Camp No. Camp No is a very well-known stadium. I think it's, you know, there's almost 100,000 seats in there. But it's uncomfortable. I mean, really uncomfortable. I mean, you sometimes can't get ice for your Coca-Cola. It's dirty. It's hard to get in and out of. There's not, you know, the service is not you know it's not the people aren't trained properly you know it's not a great experience except for one thing the game itself it is the best football in the world perhaps arguably and it and the, and the pitch is beautiful they take such perfect care of the pitch the grass um but it's always been just about that and for younger generations it's not just about that and the avidity uh you know the 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 sort of the level the intensity of their fandom is different so i think that's the big thing and of course Al Guido's been on the cutting edge, right? If you walk into Levi Stadium, there's all kinds of diversions and things to do, and the food know, is built
1: all, into your ticket.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a ton of that, and there's a lot of social media, and it's very, you know, everybody's connected. And you know, we could sit and you know have a beer and talk about whether that's good or bad, right? <laughs> you know, but it, but it is what it is.
1: It's what the younger yeah. people want.
0: Well, yeah, the fact that my 19-year-old son is looking at his phone all day and then sleeps with the damn thing drives me nuts (laughs) as a father. Drives me nuts. His face is not in books like my face used to be. But on the other hand, I do accept that society is what society is, and so we have to turn those tools into positives. And if that's how they want to absorb information, then as long as – they're absorbing things and learning and being smarter. That's great. So this is a key. Europe, Europe is is certainly behind. Now, with that said, there's some incredible and fabulous notable exceptions, mostly in the UK and to a lesser extent in Germany, um, where you're seeing new stadiums that are amazing and awesome and just as awesome, if not more awesome, than Levi's or Mercedes Benz in Atlanta, and, you know, the top buildings. So Tottenham and You know, there's new buildings. And so as new infrastructure comes into play, that's all really important. But the financial markets, so financing those buildings um, and figuring out how to make them work economically is going to be more challenging now. But in my opinion, that means that it's going to force clubs and leagues to make better business decisions.
1: Do you think we're going to see the day where either current venues are remodeled down to lower capacity or where new venues are just built at a at a smaller capacity so they're more intimate because maybe not as many people are going to live sporting events or concerts? Yeah,
0: I do. I think that's a very good observation. I mean, if you look at Bank of Cal, which is my favorite soccer stadium in the country, I think it's an amazing, beautiful place. I mean, this is L.A., It's only 22,000 seats. (laughs) They could have built that thing at 30, 40 and sold out. No problem. I mean, there's big demand down there. Um, and it's one of, it's a really cool stadium, right? And it's got, have you been there? I have not. Oh, it's just great. And it's got all kinds of little sort of neighborhoods. So if you're just sort of into having a couple beers and hanging out, kind of being social, there's places for that. If you're a super avid football fan and you want a great view of the pitch and you want to be sort of closer and more in touch with the players and what's happening around the pitch, there's plenty of options for that. If you're just into having a really, you know, kind of a fun day with friends, there's all kinds of things around that and technology. And It's a great, it's only 22,000 seats. I think uh, the the size of the stadium here in Portland, although they made it a bit bigger, is is right sized. It's based on you know the supply and demand curve works in their favor. So I fully agree with you. I mean that we've overbuilt. I mean I would you know when when Moda Center opened, which used to be called the Rose Garden, which as you know I was uh, I oversaw, it's too big. It was over capacity. And I made. I tried to make that case when I was running the show, and I and I lost. <laughs> but it was over capacity. Now, to their credit, Chris McGowan has has made lots of changes in the building, which in fact have downsized capacity. I think they're what? What are they now? Eighteen, nineteen?
1: Yeah, like I'm not sure, but I think it is you know. between
0: eighteen and yeah. 19. So they've actually it was twenty one plus before. Yeah, exactly. We when we opened, we were like twenty one five. So anyway, the the thing is, there's more that could be done in that direction. I agree with you. I think the the nature of the live event, I think people want more comfort. You know, we're packing them in there like sardines, like an airplane. You know, it's so uncomfortable to fly, right, unless you're buying super premium business class. So it's the same in an arena, right? It's uncomfortable. The seats are too jammed together. So I would love to, but, you know, that's hard to change because you can replace the seats, but the treads you can't replace. The treads are concrete right. and steel, so uh, it's – but I think the next wave of stadiums – and I also think there's going to be architects. The architects are already working, right? How do we downsize capacity without tearing down the building because the treads are already permanent? How do we how do we deal with this? And, and you know, I've got lots of architect friends and have talked to some recently, and there's some pretty cool ideas that I'm seeing that are beginning to be floated around. So I think that was a good observation on your part. I think it is going to go in that direction.
1: Last question before I let you go. Uh, again, one of the value propositions for fans and sponsors, they love being near the athletes, whether it's an autograph session or, you know, the media going into the locker room. And I know that doesn't happen in Europe, but it does happen here in the United States. I think because of COVID-19, That access to the athletes and to the coaches and the, the essential personnel around the team. I think it's going to be limited at best now. Do you see that kind of being the trend going forward?
0: God, I hope not. I mean, I I suppose in the near term, yes, but that's one of the worst outcomes here, right? If, I mean, I'm trying, I've been working so hard on Getting things going in, in more in an American direction in that way, bringing fans closer to the athletes and the coaches. I mean, we've got uh, in in Mallorca one of my one of my clients is the football club in Mallorca, which by the way is owned by the owners of the Phoenix Suns in partnership with Steve Nash. Right. Okay, so it's a it's a it's a first division club, but usually it's a second division club. But they work their way up, but now they're in first division. And they put in a player's tunnel. So for the first time, certain segments of fans can actually, um, it can actually be where the players are coming out of the locker room and as they're heading out to the pitch, which if you're, you know, if, 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 if you're with your kid, right, that's huge. I mean, people love that being close to the player. So I've been trying to push it in that direction. So I don't know. Maybe you're right, Brian. It would be a. I, I think we need to figure out how to how to keep the connection between fans and players and coaches and GMs uh, even stronger. Now, virtual could do some of that, right? We're seeing that. Did you see what the Dodgers did last week? I didn't. The Dodgers had a party last week
1: oh yeah i did see that i did see that yeah, yeah. how
0: many people I, thousands right and what they did is they had celebrities and former players and i think three or four current players and how cool was that it was like you it would be like sitting in the living room of players and celebrities and being able to listen in on their conversations And it was very interesting how open people were being. They were talking in a way that they probably wouldn't talk if it was a formal press conference or if it was a media person with a microphone in their face. So I was really, I thought, God, that's really cool. So I will say that with all the use of, you know, Zoom and Teams and all of it, you know, it has opened up, you know, the players are sitting in their houses with nothing to do. So they've been very willing to do these kinds of things. And, I like that. So maybe some of the physical contact will decrease, but the virtual contact maybe will increase.
1: Marshall Glickman, the CEO of G2 Strategic. You can find him online at g2strategic.net. Close friend, one of my mentors in sports business, European sports expert. Thank you for joining me on Sports Business Radio.
0: Brian, love talking to you. Thanks, man.
1: You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Nearly 20 years ago, Boingo dreamed of a world where people could connect to the wireless internet anywhere with any device. Today, that dream is reality and Boingo has been at the forefront. Now more than ever, staying connected is what matters most. Boingo keeps people connected to the people and things they love with next generation networks built for the 5G era. They are the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the US and they work with sports teams across the NFL, NBA, MLS, NCAA, and more. From 5G and CBRS to DAS and Wi-Fi, Boingo is a trusted partner for staying connected now and in the future. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. Connectivity is more important than ever, and you can learn more by visiting boingo.com or emailing sbradio at boingo.com. That's sbradio at boingo.com. My guest is Ian Fitzpatrick. He is the general manager and CEO of UWA Sport at the University of Western Australia. It's a world top 100 and more than 24,000 student strong university in Australia. I wanted to bring him on to get the look from Australia on how COVID is affecting sport there and, uh, just examine the overall landscape of sport in Australia. Ian, thanks for joining us on Sports Business Radio. How are you?
2: Good, Brian. Thanks for having me. It's uh, uh, quite a buzz to be on the show. I've been a long-time listener and happy to share the view from uh, from Australia.
1: Well, I appreciate it, and it's good to know that you uh, discovered us down under. Uh, Talk about your role a little bit. Because the universities in Australia are very different than the universities in the United States. The sport structure is different. Maybe you could just give us a little bit of a glimpse as to your role and the landscape of sport in Australia.
2: Yeah, so university sport in Australia is quite different to that of the U.S., um, and mainly for the fact that a lot of our sport system uh, stems from the community sport structure that we have. And as a result, you tend to see people become members of community sporting clubs uh, that play in uh, from from junior leagues all the way through to elite leagues in their cities and people tend to stay part of that club for life regardless as to where they may go to for study and so our high school and university sporting systems supplement that to a degree but it equally means that universities end up with uh, community sporting clubs uh, of their own playing in those leagues and some of our student athletes end up uh, being able to have the opportunity to play um, under the university name but equally in university uh, sorry in community competition so a sport director role here in australia is a little different it's probably a combination of the rec department and the athletic department uh, but equally with, with quite a lot of community outreach and providing a lot of community influence for the university so still run facilities do all those things that that people would expect uh, but just probably wearing a couple of different hats uh, to, at the same time, to, to what folks might do in the US.
1: And what are the most popular sports there in Australia?
2: Uh, so Australian rules football um, in the in the city that we live in is uh, is the most popular male sport, and, and fast fast a- approaching the, the, that for the female uh, as well uh, female athlete group. Uh, netball, which is a you know a, a, the only way to describe it is basketball without a hoop and some other modified rules is the most popular female sport. Um, but then basketball, uh, badminton, table tennis, e-sport, uh, anything outdoor as well is, is big for us. Uh, water sports, uh, a lot of people love uh, the, the ocean and the, the rivers swimming, um, track and field, etc. still have their place for us as well. So um, a lot of different opportunities for a lot of people. But, um, you know, on campus for us, uh, basketball would probably be one of our our bigger and, and emerging sports, both from a participation space as well as a, a competitive space um, over the last probably five years or so.
1: And I've been to Sydney and I've been to Melbourne for the uh, Australian Open Tennis and uh, just a beautiful yeah. country. And, you know, I tell people all the time, if I ever came to the decision that I wasn't going to live in the United States anymore, Australia is where I would be going. It's just beautiful. The people are so nice there like yourself and, uh, give us an idea of like budgets there and you don't have to go into specific numbers but you know in the United States at a university you could be dealing with tens of millions of dollars in your budget or it could be hundreds of thousands of dollars in your budget what kind of budgets do you have there for sport at the university level
2: yeah so again it varies quite significantly from from institution to institution, and that's the same same point you raised with the US. And um, but the big budgets here don't top the big budgets of the US. And the main reason for that is the uh, broadcast rights that fuel so much of those top end NCAA programs in basketball and football. Uh, we just don't have that stream coming into university or collegiate sport uh, in Australia. So we are probably one of the, the um, mid to large size programs um, in, in the country. Um, We'd just be below the $10 in total turnover, Um, and that, as I say, covers what is probably the traditional rec department as well as the elite athlete or or student athlete cohort that would be an athletic department. So um, a lot of the Australian system is user pay um, as well, so a lot of our student athletes and and definitely those in the recreational space are, are paying for their experience in sport a lot. Um, but, you know, generally we're, we're working with those um, sort of medium-sized budgets that are, are driven a lot by um, everything that we can create and do um, rather than broadcast rights or, or um, those kind of elements coming through that's, uh, that you might traditionally see in an NCAA program.
1: Ian, I'm interested in how COVID-19 has impacted Australia overall, but also the sport there. At what point did, you know, for us it was really like March 11th, when the nba started shutting down Mm-mm. that's when covid really started impacting sport in the united states what was the date or time period where things started shutting down there in australia
2: yeah look, we were on a very similar time scale uh, to the us um, i remember walking uh, to a meeting uh, at the same time as uh, a news alert coming through on the espn app that the nba had uh, had uh, Cease the season um, due to the Utah Jazz scenario, and I was walking into a meeting to talk about what services we were going to cease in the next 24 hours. Um, Ours was a little bit of a rolling um, stop. So we we closed some services based on recommendation of health authorities. Um, that was then followed two or three days later by more, And then it just continued to roll uh, through until around about five weeks ago, we went into complete shutdown um, of all services, of all venues, um, et cetera. So um, it's been quite the similar timeline uh, for the US as, as the US. Um, and equally, you know, quite similar impacts. You know, people have been on heavily restricted movement. Um, you know, life has been changed forever and, and everyone's working on what that whole new normal might feel like when we all get to come back from it. Um, but yeah, it's very similar timeline, very similar um, impact points um, and equally similar decisions having to, make, to be made, you know, restricting uh, what you can do with your staffing levels, um, having a look at what capital programs you might be committed to and which capital programs you might be able to still pause or um, or or potentially wait another twelve months before getting involved in um you know just really trying to trying to do your best to to manage the business side as well as the human side um and then equally try and be ready to some degree when uh when the horizon for return uh arrives
1: how's testing there
2: yeah testing has been been really uh positive and and really well done, and I have to say federally and, and, and nationally, you know, state governments, et cetera, have been very united in their approach. Um, communication has been clear. Um, we've benefited from some tremendous internal leadership at, at our university, um, from our vice-chancellor to, to directors of, of uh, groups like Student Life, and that's made jobs like mine a lot easier because you're simply drawing from that same communication or drawing from that same uh level of of, of direction that's been given and you're not having to 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 feel like you you're figuring it out all by yourself. Uh but testing has been been very positive, been quite controlled. Um a lot of the messages have been listened to by the community early and people have responded well to the restrictions. Um, and equally, we're starting to see some restrictions being lifted in different locations uh, at the moment, including where I'm fortunate enough to live. Uh, we're back to sort of 10 people being able to gather in an outdoor venue for a picnic with your family uh, kind of scenario as of uh, earlier last week. So, you know, uh, testing has been part of it, but also strong community messaging, um, good, clear communication um, and, and people following uh, the guidelines, you know, washing hands, um, doing doing everything we should be doing, and, and, and it's had the impact.
1: That's good news. That's good to hear. Uh, what do you think the new normal looks like? I've been asking everyone who joins me on Sports Business Radio that lately, and, you know, it's such a broad question, um, but in regard to sport mm-hmm. and in regard to playing sport again mm-hmm. and hosting people at venues and, you know, things of that nature, mm-hmm. what do you think the new normal
2: looks like? Yeah, I think um, you know th- there will be a, a slow return and I actually think the rebound for the sport industry is going to be the, the harder part than necessarily just the, the direct closure. Um, but you've got a lot of sports that are going to experience truncated seasons and, and people are going to be asking the value proposition question as well as the, the personal safety and health uh, question as well. So I think there's going to have to be some uh, some different models offered up by sports that can't push into longer seasons, um, in particular when we're talking community. So I think we might see some more uh, tournament-style seasons come in and tournament play where people aren't travelling as far as uh, as they might have previously to play against other sides in their leagues and things along those lines. Um, you know, Australia is a, a massive place and, and a lot of travel happens for the sake of sport. Um, and I think we're going to have to, to see a, a bit of an adjustment to that, at least in the short term, as we then return slowly to, to maybe some more traditional models. At the community level I think we'll we're seeing a great deal of enthusiasm for people to want to come back and, and be able to interact with each other and do what they love doing at their sporting grounds and sporting fields. But you know, following health advice is going to have to be the key part. So I think that that patience and and following through with that health advice is going to be all part of it. And, and venues will look different and feel different because there'll be hand sanitizer everywhere and there'll be more regular cleaning hours and rosters and rotations. And, and consumers will be far more sensitive, I think, to um, you know what's the state of the cleanliness in the fitness facility that I train in, um, whereas previously they you know might not have read that bring your towel sign and took it as seriously as they probably will now um, as, as far as maintaining the equipment for the person who might come next in line so you know I think there'll be a whole range of changes there um, and I'm just hopeful that we're able to remember some of the positive things we learnt along the way through through COVID and, and hold on to those as well as uh, come back to, to a state of, um, of feeling comfortable in each other's company um, for the sake of sport and, and consuming a whole range of different products. Be that sitting next to a, you know, season ticket holder that we always see year on year at our favorite sporting team, all the way down to seeing, you know, kids back running around the track at at Little Athletics on a a Saturday morning.
1: Yeah. It's interesting, you know, whether you go to the grocery store now and you're wearing masks or they have the uh, glass in front of the, the checker at checkout, Or, you know, I've been seeing what the Miami Dolphins and the NFL here in the United States are doing to their venue and some of the changes they're making to their venue for when they have an NFL season. I'm wondering, you know, it's not one size fits all. And and here you are in Australia and I'm in the United States. But I'm wondering what venues are going to look like at the end of this, because I I think, like you said, there's going to be more hand sanitizer. But I think it's going to be even beyond that, I think we're going to have cashless transactions so you know you're going to have someone scan your mm. app on your phone to pay for things i think they're going to try and reduce as many contact points as possible in australia will that go over okay will people be like okay i'm still going to go to a sporting event even though it's a different experience than what i had before or will people be more likely to stay at home and watch it on tv
2: um I think people will still attend uh, the the games and and the live action because over the last 10 to 15 years, the improvements that we've seen in broadcasting, um, the um, the soundbite approach that we've seen coming in on social media, the um, the highlights that can be pushed to phones and all those kind of things, people still love being in a venue and still love being at, at the event. And in some circumstances, people have to be in the venue. You know, Outside of pro sport, parents still have to be there to supervise children from a safety perspective. Um, there's, there's um, parts of our community who need support and help to participate in the activity that we're in. And as a result, that draws a large number of people to a site or to a venue. So I, I still think people will um, will attend, but I think there's a certain number of things that people will expect um, and people will value differently in their in their experience. So as you say, the, the contactless um, payment piece, people will just, it'll almost be odd to hand someone cash at a venue um, going forward. Um, you know, people will pay attention to where they, um, you know, hold on to handrails and and all those kind of things, and hence their expectations of cleaning standards um, and and the frequency at which those things will be will be occurring uh, will be much higher. Um, it'll be interesting to see if um, the, the ticket attendants who help you to your seat in a major venue are equally, you know, kind of giving it a quick wipe over with a, a, a personalised wipe um, in some way, shape or form before you take a seat. You know, it's those kind of things that I think people will expect and. And as a result, we might see a change in the cost to attend these events as well, and that's going to be a fine balance. Um, you know, people have a lot less disposable income. Unemployment is going to be a significant issue in so many major economies, um, and, and and that's going to drive what disposable income people have to spend on these experiences. So, you know, I think it will get there, but I don't think it will come rushing back. Um, I think people will be sensitive to vaccine versus no vaccine um and all those kind of kind of items as well so i think it'll be a slow road and hence why i think that rebound coming back is is going to be a very uh, challenging time for people in sport um as well as for the you know the real diehard fan who just wants to be back um and doesn't really care uh for some for some reason
1: ian you mentioned that disposable dollar give us an idea of you know if you're if i'm going to one of the top sporting event in Australia. How much am I going to pay for a ticket?
2: Yeah, so you're you're paying, you know, for a reasonable seat in a reasonable venue to watch, I guess, our version of, of the NFL, so the Australian Football League. Um, you're, you're paying $75, $80 a ticket um, and, and much more if you, you want to improve the seat from there. There's still cost-effective seats um, further away, um, but that's probably in your ballpark of your average. But it's more the whole experience that people normally have when they go to a game. Um, So we don't tailgate uh, quite the way that uh, the the US do. And having lived in the US, I love that that culture and that that atmosphere outside the stadium. Ours is more indoors in in pubs and bars. Um, So I think that part of the experience will obviously shift for a little while as well. Um, But that definitely hits the hip pocket um, for a lot of folks as well because venues, you know, they they have a habit of, you know, hitting the, the hip pocket when it comes to food and beverage. Uh, quite hard and and things like that. And and so the whole up experience can be quite expensive. You know, if you're a family of four looking to go to an Australian rules football game, it can be a a pricey experience for folks.
1: Here in the United States, the unemployment currently is 30 million people. That's a lot. Uh, Mm. What's unemployment Mm. look like in Australia right now?
2: Yeah, it's definitely on the rise. Um, But the, the federal government, uh, here have announced a, a scheme called JobKeeper and, and JobKeeper is you know um, paying a subsidy of 1500 Australian dollars per fortnight or per two-week block, so $3,000 a month hmm. uh, to employers to pass on directly to all staff and meet certain criteria. And this is both full-time staff as well as casually employed staff. So if we're talking arena attendants um, who only work every second Saturday when there's a home game, you know, they're eligible under most circumstances to, to pick this up. So that's anticipated to positively impact about uh, four and a half to five million Australians and keep them off unemployment. Um, but it's coming at a cost of $130 billion uh, expense to the, to the government and, and ultimately to the taxpayer. Uh, but that's definitely been a, a great lifeline for us um, in what we do. We, we, the way we're structured is actually as a, as a company of the university, and so we've actually been deemed eligible for this scheme. And as a result, my staffing um, levels are, um, and my team are getting a significant benefit from that. Um, in particular, a lot of my student employees and, and, and things like that who've been stood down from, from all work for a little while now. So um, there's definitely schemes and, and, and um, approaches being taken to avoid um, mass unemployment, but it, it, there's no avoiding it. It will rise and, and ours might even be it. You know, come September when this game runs out, we might see another bump again um, in unemployment, depending on where businesses and and trades have come back to.
1: Last question for you. Do you think that we'll see live sporting events? Again, people getting together, thousands of people in 2020. Or do you think that, like I think in the United States, until we have a vaccine, we may see it, but it's going to be a risky proposition. Uh, what is the mindset in Australia about getting people together by the masses again to watch sports
2: yeah i I, I think it's going to be a, a you know a hurry up and go slow um, approach you know people are are, are wanting to know um, maybe what the light at the end of the tunnel looks like or when might that experience be, be back in their life, but at the same time, there's a need to go slow to plot it out correctly and get it right. We're receiving uh, only last week and again on Friday of this coming week, um, our federal government are releasing guidelines for the return of sports specifically uh, at community, at pro and at elite um, training levels. Um, and and they're working through a whole range of things that we'll be um, guided by and be sticking to um, as a whole sector. And I think that gives us a good hope. Um, or a good sense of, um, you know, when will we be able to get back to those kind of, kind of events? I think people will be very cautious and I think we, we all should be, um, respectful of sport is really important and we love it. But, you know, the heroes have really stood up in this, this cycle and it's been great to see, you know, frontline responders getting the credit for the work that needs to be done. So let's not put them back in that position of needing to do more. Um, and, and as a result, I think we'll, we'll see it, but I think it'll be in a very different, um, way, and I think it'll be, um, you know, highly likely to be towards the very end of the year if we're going to see it at all. But I think people will be okay in accepting that. Um, in most cases, you know, you've got your diehard fans who probably go to a stadium tomorrow to watch their team, um, but I think on the mass, um, people will respect uh, the approach that needs to be taken to avoid, um, you know, a spike or a return uh, to the scenario as we've all been living for the last number number of weeks.
1: Ian Fitzpatrick, the General Manager and CEO at the University of Western Australia. A listener of the show reached out to me. I wanted to bring him on and get his perspective from Australia. I really appreciate you joining me, Ian, and I hope you're safe and I hope that, uh, you know, everything gets back to the new normal as, as soon as possible there in Australia.
2: Yeah, thanks. I hope you and uh, the, the crew stay safe as well, Brian. And You live in a great place in Oregon, so um, you, you get a little taste of Australia almost every day with that great weather that you guys have there. But uh, <laughs> Next time, come to Perth, hey?
1: I would love that. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. If you're working from home now like I am, you still need to look professional. Many of us are doing Zoom conferences or FaceTime calls with business associates. That's why I turn to my Mizzen and Main dress shirts. I need to look good from the waist up, but I also want to be comfortable. Mizzen and Main is like athletic wear disguised as a dress shirt, making them great for comfort while working from home. It's a shirt that has worked for thousands of customers, including hundreds of professional athletes like J.J. Watt and Phil Mickelson. Head on over to MizzenandMain.com and use promo code SBR to get $10 off your dress shirt. That's MizzenandMain.com, code SBR. Guess what? Mizzen and Maine also make super comfortable wrinkle-free pants and shorts, so you can check those out as well. Head on over to mizzenandmain.com, use promo code SBR to get $10 off your next purchase. That's mizzenandmain.com, code SBR. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank thanks to our friends at boingo wireless for powering our sports business radio Roadshow. follow them online at boingo.com or on twitter at boingo for brian griggs i'm brian Berger. have a great week and we'll talk to you soon right here on sports business radio
3: this and every sbr podcast is available on apple podcasts spotify stitcher and your favorite listening app Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at
0: SportsBusinessRadio.com.